I know it's busy days, so I really appreciate you stopping by. You're welcome. You're welcome. So what's the best part of Norway? Is it just for business or is the country also okay to visit sometimes? Well, actually, I, I mean, I know Norway pretty well. And, um, you know, I've been here many times, you know, vacation business. So, yeah, it's been, you know, for us, it's, it's Oslo is, you know, the kind of the center hub, actually, of, of what we do in Hafnia because our, our shares are listed on the stock exchange. So, yeah, come here a lot. Good combination. So what do you think are the main reasons you ended up in shipping? Because Denmark also has a unique cluster. It educates a lot of great minds in shipping. So is it by accident you ended up in shipping or is the cluster and the network so strong that you're pulled towards shipping? Yeah. So it's a good question. I mean, to be honest, the, 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 the real story is that I think my mother was pretty worried that I didn't know what to do. So she actually one day gave me uh, like a clip out of a paper that um, described shipping. And it went like, you know, if you like global trade, if you like language, if you like economics, whatever. Uh, and she said, I mean, but that's what you like, isn't it? You know, wouldn't that be something? At that point, I was studying at university, didn't know what to do. So I actually, I read it and I was like, yeah, no, she's actually right. So I just sent out applications and came in afterwards in Tom, right, which is Dane's company and spent like, you know, uh, 26, 27 years in that. So it was, I would call it a coincidence, but, you know, I guess that's what parents do, right? Is that, you know, when you're a little bit worried, you try to push your kids in the direction you think that's right. But but you ended you ended <clears throat> up, you know, staying there for quite a lot of a lot of time. Yeah. Was that also because the company grew, the responsibility grew, you got global exposure? Was it just like, why stop something that's working? Yeah, exactly. No, I think I was... You know, and I think you should do this, right? You should evaluate your career as you go on, right? And that you have certain alternatives. But every time I had an alternative and I looked at where I was, I felt that the way that Tom was going from a very small company to ended up also being, you know, the biggest in the world within uh, refined oil. You know, I, was, I always felt the challenges were greater where I was than outside. So if it had been stable and nothing had happened, I for sure would have gone a different place and... I personally feel that when you talk about running a business, that's a lesson to be learned, right? If, if, if even when things are good, if you stop up and you don't motivate hungry employees that, that are talents that wants to get fed in terms of knowing more, then I don't think you're going to be able to keep talents, right? So yeah. you have to do that. You have to keep on making it attractive to work within your system. Definitely. If you look back at that career trajectory, where do you think the learning curve was steepest or you got some battle scars? It could have been the markets. It could have been the job at hand. Yeah. Do, you, do you look back and say those situations or years were challenging but rewarding? I think it was probably two things. I mean, I would say that when I... So I, I, would kind of, I, I was brought up in the commercial part, if you like. So I was doing negotiations and chartering. And, and, and I still remember the, the, you know, the volatility of our market. You know, the fact that markets will drop 50% overnight on your shift. That I still remember getting adapted to like handling it without panicking and, and not getting, you know, stomach pain for that swings. That was my first experience. And I think you have to go through it. And if it still hurts after, you know, a period of time, you probably shouldn't go down that route. So that, that was one thing which I recall as being a big step. The other one was when I moved into executive management. So when I really became like a COO position and suddenly had responsibility for technical different things, 
I remember that, you know, th- these are things that you can never really be prepared for. I mean, how do you prepare for a CEO position when you haven't been, right? So that step going into that world and trying to catch up fast and trying to, you know, get sufficient knowledge to be able to help and, and guide your colleagues. I, I remember that as being pretty challenging. So, but given that experience and you ended up, as you said, on the top, so what is the thought process like when you're considering starting your own company, co-founding Hafnia, the founding story? Because for some people it has to be a bit difficult because if you start a company in your 20s, no risk, you can just learn, adapt. Yeah. But once you're taking all those steps, like some people may think maybe it's not the right time to start something new. So how did that look? Was it an easy decision or something you have to contemplate a lot? Yeah, so I've, I've actually done a few, you know, um, presentations for, for, for younger people in this context. You know, how do you start and, and, and what's the reasoning? And, and I, have a, I mean, I have a firm belief that every single individual has an element of entrepreneurship in he or her, for sure. It's just a matter of when it comes out. I did not consider myself as an entrepreneur, quite frankly. And I think I could have stayed within that organization until retirement. But it just came to me at some point, And I think it was back on experience. And you built some confidence. So it only got to me when I was like early 40s. Uh, for some people, it comes when they're 20, 25. So the advantage of it coming late was that we actually had a strong network and a track record, which I think makes it easier when you talk to investors and others. So, I mean... The, the reasoning behind was really that I, I think we came to a point uh, in our professional lives where, you know, we felt we could do better on our own. And, and, and that was a little bit about, you know, are you getting sufficiently recognized as a team, as, 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 as an organization for what you do? And, and at some point, I didn't feel that there was sufficient recognition for who actually built companies. Capital is important. But the real value lies in your organization, right? That you build up and you create a culture. And I felt that we could do better. So that's kind of the combination of that that we started yeah. half near. So there is a, a very famous quote that, you know, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And listening to some of your talks before, preparation was a key part of actually starting it. You spend yeah. a lot of time on the drawing board mapping out all the scenarios and what you were supposed to do. And I guess, you know, maybe also especially relevant in shipping because it's capital intensive. If it's just a smart app, maybe not necessary to spend a couple of years thinking through everything because iterations are so um, important regardless. But shipping and preparation, you can explain the thought process, but there's many good reasons to take a bit of time to really understand. Yes. And I think that's that's a great point. And, And I mean, there were two key things that was very important, right? One is that I think a lot of people have great ideas, and, and, but a lot of people also think they can do it on their own, right? I always compare it a bit to like football, and I mean, we can stay in Norwegian terms, say like Holland, right? It's like those types that scores all the goals sometimes may have a tendency of thinking, you know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm the star here. Um, we came with a team, and when we started this journey with Hafnia, we had already put a team together. And, and I remember the first investor meetings that we had with, with people that ended up supporting us. When we talked about it afterwards, they said, you were the only ones that came with a defined team. So we were comfortable. That wasn't just the head man person. Um, and we came with our own analysis. 
So those two things, like we had done our own work to present the business plan, not just copy it from others, and we had a team. So you take the two most important boxes for investors is that they have a track tree, they have a track record, they brought a team, they thought about it, and they made their own analysis. Yeah. So those are three key elements. Great ones. And just to add on that one, I think you also said that one of the you know most important principles early on is don't lose money on the first deal. Yeah. Can you explain a bit about that? Because maybe the tendency of an entrepreneur is just look at a huge upside, Yeah. but maybe risk management at the start gives you the benefit going forward as well. Mm. Because market, like you said, are volatile by nature. Yes. So is that also a reason why? Totally. And I think it's um, it actually is around, you know, what kind of investors do you approach? So I think if you want to start a business in shipping and it has to do with assets, i.e. and you need capital, it's easy to be tempted and just be happy that somebody will invest with you. And it's like, oh, that's great. You know, they're giving us X amount of dollars. It's fantastic. You need to understand the nature of the capital that comes in. And when, when you have the first conversation, that can be difficult because everyone will tell you that it's great and they're willing to put money in and you're going to make a lot together. You need to understand the time horizon and what the expectations are. This was my biggest challenge, was to actually, coming from a listed entity where shareholder interaction was through investor meetings that were already established, to talk to private equity, to different funds that have often too short a time horizon for what the shipping cycle requires to actually make a profit. So that was where I had that first lesson because we had, we'd started the business and we were eager to show the world that we are the world champions, you know, and we were like eager to buy ships and do things. And we were fighting a bit getting it through. And that's when, when that person, you know, that was a key investor said to me, just remember one thing, when you're dealing with this type of investor, always make money on the first deal. It doesn't matter how small it is, that will take down the parades, it will create confidence, and you will be able to get more. You lose money in the first deal, every single thing you put up is going to be hit by another filter because we don't lose money twice. Yeah. And it's a, I still remember it, and I think it's a great thing to focus on. Don't be too greedy, yeah. and it's okay to wait, right? Which is not an easy thing for shipping people. We don't, you know, yeah. most of us don't like to wait, but it's a really good advice. So I learned a lot from the capital market around this. Great points. Um, so from the outside, you look at Hafnia and the story, and today, of course, we'll come back to the market sentiment, and you know it's been a great ride over the last years, but you have the inside perspective, so you actually know what were the biggest you know, inflection points or the biggest milestones that sent, sent you off in this direction. Looking yeah. back on the story up today, what do you think are the biggest you know, milestones that made this journey so good? So I think it was um, one that we were patient. And I think this was important. So we, you know, we, as I said before, we were forced to be patient. And that meant that we didn't overspend or buy at the wrong time. So I think one is that we've been very good at doing deals and transactions at bottom levels of the cycle. Second one is that we have been uh, disciplined in our capital allocation. So we didn't create Hafnia to make a lot of money in two years. We created Hafnia to create a business that will last for 100 years. So everything we did was always with a focus on if we are wrong about where markets are going, can we still survive at the lowest point of the cycle? So we kind of turn it all around where most of our competition in those days 
were all fired up because everyone thought the market was going to come in two years' time and was gearing up their balance sheet to get the maximum output out of the super cycle. And nine out of 10 dropped out because of that. So it's a downside protection that was an infection point for us to continue to weather that markets didn't go as we expected. And then I think the the, the other one was, was really around... Um, you know, trying to be flexible in the way that we looked at transactions. So we didn't lock ourselves in and say we should only buy vessels like this or only buy new builds. We looked at M&A transactions, other combinations. So it was diversified portfolio in terms of how we did transactions. Um, so I think this is, you know, this was, um, this was a good part of it. And, and um, the infection point for us was really when we managed to buy a fleet from Danis Lauritsen that wanted to exit uh, the product tanker space. Um, we had an investor called Blackstone that owned an amount of ships that they didn't have a home for, and they came to us. So we basically put together a package where we bought uh, 12 secondhand ships. From Blackstone we brought in, gave them Hafnia shares, and ordered a bunch of new builds at GSI in China, packed it all together, went on the road, raised $235 million across the world, came back and basically lifted all these uh, approvals in one go. So we went from small company to suddenly adding 20-odd ships uh, overnight. That was a massive infection point and allowed us to come to Oslo and do the OTC listing and then subsequently, well, the, the full listing. It's fascinating because you say that you have the, the benefit of being able to be flexible. Because mm. I can just imagine, I don't know the company in detail, but if you take Maersk, for instance, you know, sometimes, you know, you become so big that being, you know, nimble and flexible doesn't make sense because yeah. it's so large, you know. Is that also true that when you're starting a new company, the advantage is that, like you said, you can be flexible, look at different things, yeah. be a bit unconventional? I think for sure that helps when you're building. But I think also, you know, during the journey, there comes a point yeah. where actually scale becomes important yeah. because the thing is about our markets, at least compared to Maersk. So Maersk is a container business, which is like more A to B, right? And it's more logistic, uh, if you like, business than it's, it's shipping. We have vessels that basically every day are looking for employment. So if, if you think about it in that context, if you operate 220 ships, all around the world, the market intelligence you get from having all these ships allows you to position ships better. Yeah. So at some point, yeah, it's great to be small and agile when you grow, but scale actually has a different value uh, in that combination. Yeah, Maybe we need to introduce the market you operate in, because for some people, you know, what's the difference between tanker, product tankers, and yeah. how would you introduce the market? It's quite easy, but for people who are not into it, maybe they need the ABC on what market are we talking about here? Because like you yeah. said, it's volatile, unique, global. So what is like the frame you use to explain it? So normally what I would say is that if you think about what we do, which is product tankers, that means we're basically transporting gasoline, diesel oil, you know, jet fuel, the, the, the stuff that comes out of a refinery. So the way you want to think about the tanker business in general is that if you take Frontline, for instance, they will be supplying crude oil that comes out of the ground from where it comes up to the refinery. So that's a slightly more stable business in the sense that that oil doesn't really go different places, right? You kind of know where oil comes out into a refinery. 
we take the things that come out of the refinery afterwards. So that's more clean because, you know, the darkest product that we carry is like, you know, it's kind of, you know, yellowish, I would say, and the same consistency as, as a kind of a, a soda, basically. So it's not sticky. It's not, it's not like crude, dark oil. It's a clean part. All of these products, contrary to the crude oil coming into the refinery, have the whole world as a consumption area. So the way you want to think about our market is that everywhere in the world, someone uses gasoline, diesel, or jet fuel. So our ships go everywhere, which is why it's important to have scale so you can cover the entire world. Um, the cargoes on board our ships gets traded multiple times while they're on board the vessel. So we never know where they're going. So a vessel coming out of, say, the Arabian Gulf could go to Japan, could go to New York, could go to Rotterdam, could go to West Africa. So you need to think about, you take that and then you multiply it by 220 ships. And you can see how the optionality in our world is every day we are trying to optimize in this universe of vessels and cargoes traveling around, trying to get a better performance than our competitors and others. Yeah. So it's a very much of a, a volatile trading world that we're part of. So for people who are, you know, retail investors looking at this, what is the correlation or the causality between crude and product clean? Is there yeah. anything that is like set in stone, the patterns, or not really? No. I mean, I think it's it's a really good question, actually, because it's probably also one of the misunderstandings, I think, in the market that people feel, well, let's just watch the crude market and then we know what's going to happen in products. That's not the case. Is there a correlation? Well, to some extent, there is over time, because obviously you need to put oil into a refinery to get something out of the refinery. So there is some correlation, but... The biggest difference, I think, is uh, when you compare the two, is that if markets are really bad for crude oil ships, it's very difficult to do something else, right? You load the cargo from A, you technically go to B. You can't really do too much. If the market is bad in products, remembering that we have voyages all around the world, you can actually make a difference if you have a good operation. So you can start sending ships to certain areas where you think, you know, there might be some export coming out of this area. So it makes better sense to go down here than going there. So the thinking process of where you put your ships can maybe turn a bad market into a bad market plus 20%. Yeah. That, that's, I would say, is the biggest difference. Yeah. But, but like you said, you described all the vessels and then you have the optionality. So... If you're going to be able to put this in an Excel sheet or whatever, how do you tackle it? Do you think it's, uh, do you get the Pareto principle that 20% of the news gives you 80% of the answer? So whether it's China, the Gulf, or how do you yeah. tackle that news flow and to be able to order, no, to be able to truly understand the market dynamics? Yeah. Because many people, I guess, are trying to do that every day. Yeah. So how do they go about it? Well, I think it's a combination, right? And someone asked me the other day, so is a high oil price good or bad for your market, for instance, right? And said, well, you know, I need to go deeper to explain that. And I think, you know, news like oil price and others have an effect, but it's the combination of them. So, for instance, a higher oil price means that we are paying more for the fuel that we use to get the ship sailing. Uh, is, the high, is the high oil price driven by lack of supply or is it driven by demand going up? Right? So there are two different things in it. 
So when we analyze our markets, it, it's really about um, understanding the dynamics on what creates trading. So I'll give you an example. Refinery margins. One important thing to monitor, right? Because if the refineries make a lot of money by refining crude oil into products, they will increase production. That means more comes out. For us, it's not so much the absolute demand of diesel or gasoline that's important. It's actually more important that they travel longer distances. And that's trading, right? Someone buys gasoline out of the Middle East. Where can I sell it at the highest price? To understand that dynamic, you know, where are the, the new demand areas? That's important. Um, but if I can just add one thing to this, um, if anyone looks at our market and they look, look back at 35 years, there is one pattern that if, if there's one takeaway I would like people to look at, it's we have never had a demand problem ever in all these years. Yes, we had a blip after the financial crisis. We had a, a blip again after the uh, in Corona, but it quickly came back. Oil demand has gone up and will continue to be strong for the next five years at least. Every time our market has been bad, it's when we have ordered too many ships. It's been supply driven. And the difference where we are now compared to all the other uh, downsizes is that you can't order ships until 2026, 2027. And the order book is so low compared to all the old ships coming off. So all investors should look at one thing, supply. Yeah. If supply for one reason should go through the roof, then you know that sometime out there, uh, the market will change. In our view now, you're looking at five, 10 years out where it's impossible even if we took all the yard capacity in the world, we can't cover the shortfall of ships that are getting too old and now being scrapped. Fascinating, because maybe that's you know the key question people are talking about, because like you said, I think you were quoted that you haven't seen as good rates in your entire career, you said mm. some time ago. And if you hear that news that the CEO was, you know, such a vast amount of experience has mm. says that it's never been better, then maybe psychologically you think, okay, it's not going to last. Yeah. So is that like the big question that, like you said in the previous answer, now it's a, it's a question about, well, how good can it, it will take a while to, yeah. you know, rates to drop significantly because it will be cyclical shipping regardless, I guess, in some capacity. It will, but I think it's... Um... And as I said, I mean, I have no interest in trying to tell people that my is going to be strong because it's a long-term business. Right? We meet people again. We're not here to make a short-term profit and then run out and then say, good luck. So I don't believe in, there's no point in trying to create scenarios that are unrealistic. Um, but, but this time around, as an investor, you can probably compare it to the investment in oil and gas. So we've been through a number of years where basically everyone has said, uh, you know, it's going to be a transition into renewables. And I think there was this misunderstanding that was going to happen overnight. So people got really scared of investing in oil and gas uh, production. But also in our field, no one bought oil tankers because, well, are they going to be obsolete? What is happening? As then the world has corrected itself, it's become pretty obvious that we are going to a transition and we should, and we will do everything we can to reduce our emission footprint but the reality is that oil will be part of the energy complex for many, many years. So suddenly we've left ourselves underinvested. So as I said earlier, you've seen yard capacity 
reduced by 50% in 2008. At the same time, the current yards are full up of container ships, gas carriers, everything else but tankers. So it's just going to be impossible to jump out and secure, by the way, the highest paid assets that you've seen in history in terms of new book prices. Uh, and it still has to live for another 25 years. So that's what's keeping the new building market low. Yeah. If you look at the sector, of course, you have several great Danish companies. And then, of course, analysts will say who has you know the lowest break even, who has the biggest reputation. And how do you balance all these factors? Because, I mean, reputation is probably the most valuable asset in some sense. If you don't have reputation, it's hard to imagine doing business for the yes. long run. Yeah. So how will you look at you know, the, the sustainable competitive advantages you can have? Because it's not like a technology where you can have a moat and network effect, because like you said, the world is, you know, a lot of things can happen that yeah. um, affects the business. Yeah. So how do you look at that whole picture? Like you said, you're building a business for the long term and what are the trade-offs or the things you should never do in order to get a quick buck? Yes. No, I think it's a good question. Actually, I mean, for us in some of the initial years, it was a bit of a frustration actually that we saw companies that were 100 years old, but that we knew did worse than us, actually got more support, you know, particularly by retail investors and others. And that was kind of a, well, it was a frustration, but it was also highlights, of course, that having a long history gives an element of comfort to people, right? Which I actually think is fair enough. It just isn't a guarantee for future success. If you stop out for all the good reasons and you don't do anything with the company for 10 years, well, say five years now, for instance, your company's going to get halved easily. So I think it's it's... Yes, history is important. Current management is more important. And current performance and strategy is really important in terms of evaluating where you want to place your money. So, um, you know, I think, well, you can only work as you do on creating a track record. But I think that it's, um, we're back to what we talked about earlier. I have, I mean, I have zero uh, interest in making short-term bets. And I think that's the key element. And, and you know, when, when Hafnir grew in 2021, where we did quite a lot of acquisitions, we even lost a bit of money that year. Our competitors lost a lot more money. But because we had strong focus on cost, we could actually be offensive in a weak market, which is really what you want. And so the, the difference is not so much about trying to maximize when it's on its way up, yeah. What you should think about is when the market drops at some point, are you in a position to start growing? Because that's where you want to grow. So that's cost discipline uh, at the end of the day and it's patience and not being like driven into, oh, the market is going up. It's going to yeah. go through the roof. Let's continue to buy 100 ships. Exactly. So we touched upon scale and why that is important. And, you know, I think many people have a dream of consolidation for many reasons, better for business and of course, you have like the companies we mentioned already. I saw there were some people trying to say, why can't you consolidate all of them and have the global powerhouse? Yeah. Is that not a, not a great idea for regulations or other reasons or culture? Or where does the scaling sort of say, okay, we're yeah. big enough? Is it an inflection point or is it a lot of different factors, chemistry as well? Yeah, uh, no, I mean, for sure there is a point where you can't become too big. 
in terms of, of competition law, right? So that, but that's a regulated thing. So that will regulate itself. If you want to consolidate and you go too big, I mean, you'll get scaled back. So that I'd take more as a regulatory part. Um, I think you can have bigger companies. And I don't think that shipping companies in general are big enough to attract sufficient shareholder interest if you really want to, in a way, to get full value out of your share price. So I do think that, that there's more scale to be done. Um, absolutely, culture is super important. And we have said no to, to big consolidations because we couldn't see that we could turn this into one culture alone. Um, and it was just too different in the way that we looked at the business. So I definitely think that's a combination. So in my view, that's probably going to be more consolidation driven by smaller entities that are looking for exit opportunities and therefore can fold into a bigger entity uh, rather than having well-established big, big companies finding together. I think that that's a more difficult one. Yeah, definitely. We touched upon culture and I think you have been conscious about the culture from day one. Do you have a way to describing it? Because sometimes culture is, you know, it's very easy to have the, the sentences that says we're going to be innovative, we're going to take yeah. care of our people, but really it's about behaviors and actions. Yeah. So how have you designed the culture and any lessons learned? Because one thing is having it in theory, but out in practice, usually, like we said in football, can be different, you know. Yes. Are you able to execute on, on the idea yeah. the coach has? Exactly. No, I, I mean, and I think it, it's a super important item. Um, so what we did is basically we built the culture with everyone being involved. So I didn't say, you know, we should have this or that and these should be our values. We basically took the entire organization, particularly after we did a big merger a number of years ago, and said, we all need to agree on how we want to run this company. <clears throat> so we went to workshops where we asked people for their views on what do you think, you know, from what you know already, how would you see Hafnia <clears throat> developing around these areas? Lots of workshops, lots of talk about our values. So we came out of this with a very strong buy-in from our colleagues that this was a joint effort to create the Hafnia culture. Um, I think the biggest mistake that people sometimes make is that a few people decide what the values should be and what everything else should look like. And then they expect to have the buy-in afterwards. Yeah. So the bottom-up, I think, was super important. Uh, it makes sense. And also maybe if you, so one thing is, you know, have all that uh, time, you know, building it and creating it, but then you also need to execute on it. So yeah. how stubborn do you think you have to be to keep that culture in place? Because like, I guess you always know there's people involved, there are different sides, maybe there's a story inside the organization. Yeah. And then what usually happens, if it can't get resolved, it ends yeah. up on the top yes. in some form. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, totally. Is that hard to execute on, to be that, you know? Well, I think it's a constant process. And the, the, the easiest way for me to describe it is that that's the leadership task, right? So what we need, all the people that have managerial responsibility in Hafnia has to be dedicated to this. And we spend a lot of time. So one thing is you define the culture you like and the values and what they actually mean, not just a poster or you know, a cup, whatever, but what do they actually mean in daily life? Second step was to build on the leadership competences. 
So we basically chose to have what you can call a value-based leadership style. So our view is that if you have a dilemma and you're debating it, what to do here, think about the values and take the moral compass to guide you. What is, what is the right decision for Hafnir here? And by doing this, we've just been building and continuously talk about the leadership style because obviously I can't run this on my own and I shouldn't. Um, but I'm very much aware that this is something you need to talk about all the time. So that's how you do it. And yes, have we had issues? Absolutely. Have we had to get rid of people that didn't take that leadership cultural part seriously? Absolutely. And that's how you, you basically make sure that yeah. you develop, right? But, you know, Hafnia is also... The organization has a big scale. There's a lot of people involved. So looking at your own journey, because, you know, being the, f- the founding member, you're always on top of everything. Mm. But then you sort of have to transition at some point and say, I can't be on top of every task. Yeah. But maybe you enjoy some tasks, so you want to be involved. So how does your day-to-day look? Has it evolved a lot over time? Or do you always had you know, a, uh, a structure on how you like to work what the projects you like being on? Or is that yeah. also a transition and evolution? Yeah, so I think it's... I have mainly been involved, particularly as we grew the company, right? So M&A transactions, bigger transactions. And quite frankly, I mean, the whole organization has been pretty hard worked over the last many years, creating every time there was a project, we have finished one, there was a new one. So I think we were all very excited building this company. For the last year, we've kind of been, if you know, in harvesting mood. So the business is great, it's up there, and people can now focus on optimizing and basically returning capital to shareholders. And so what I've come to realize, having had 12 months now of more daily operation than expanding projects, is that the beauty about doing a lot of projects is that you create some very, very, very skillful colleagues. You know, it's stressful when when it's happening, But you think about people in a finance team that has been doing multiple refinancing, you know, chains of of structures, uh, re-domiciling in terms of companies. We have people that are at the age of 35, 37 that have done more and have more experience than people that are at the end of their career. So I realized that the great thing about activity is that you educate your organization and everyone that comes through it you're certainly looking at a really, really well-managed platform. So I can happily say today that, I mean, I have a vested interest in the business, right? I came out of, it's a bottom-up thing for me. I love the commercial side, I love the operations, the procurement side, and I understand it. But I read the reports and I don't, you know, I don't drill down and try to be a nuisance in that. I try to keep the level up here and particularly focus on half-year as a business that's owned by a lot of different shareholders? And how do we make sure that the pricing of our shares, that the results we have are better than our peers and therefore justifies more investors buying into the Hafner's share? Yeah, it makes sense. Do you also think in the next five to 10 years, what people will judge you on is of course uh, the business profitability, but also the sustainability side, which is much, uh, more complex to tackle. Yeah. Because, yeah, you can have a leadership position, but if the result is uncertain yet, mm. it's not always the best to be the first. No. How does that look in your mind? How do you try to view that whole landscape? Yeah. And, well, first of all, I think it's, I mean, it's a massive 
interesting challenge for anyone that likes leadership responsibility to actually be in a time where you can see the world is changing. And one is the environmental sustainable part, but there's also digitization, you know, the way you work, you know, artificial intelligence, what effect will it have on your, your daily work processes? So I find it super interesting. And I think that, um, of course, we can't be blind to the fact that if Hafner is going to be 100 years, sometime out there in the future, there has to be a different leg than just transporting fossil fuels. Our view is that it's going to take a long, 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 long time before there's any meaningful replacement to oil. So we are focusing on trying to still have an interesting business that we have now, but the sustainability is actually about making sure that you reduce your environmental footprint every single day, which is what we are doing. But sustainability is also to have a business that creates long-term profit, right? There's no point in me making big bets, as you call it, early movers in a market that isn't really there, and then go bankrupt in two years. So I think people also need to understand sustainability is also about understanding how you keep your business going for a long time. So we, we have a climate strategy. We have been vocal about what we think Huffington should be in 2050. But we don't talk too much about 2050. We talk about what we're doing today. Yeah. And we will very slowly but surely as we have done already, look at small projects where we, for instance, have bought dual fuel ships that can burn clean methanol. Uh, you know, we're looking at transporting uh, a few ships on clean ammonia. So we are slowly but surely on a track that is more sustainable. But as you say, we are not going to make any bets without we have coverage on earnings and therefore a secured return on the money. Yeah. So you're never going to see us go out and say, just to get a medal for being, you know, ambitious and buy ships and try to create, you know, a, a random strategy. That's not the way we're going to approach it. Do you think, in all honesty, that the only way you can have this transition quicker is just have a very large carbon tax and force companies? Because, like you said, it will not make sense unless the market is there. But right. The market will. This is a chicken and egg problem. Yes. So. Yeah. Have you thought about it? What yeah. actually will move the needle? No, I, I think that is true. I mean, I do think that the carbon tax is needed. Um, and I think it is needed in order to force that behavior. Um, but I also do think that it's important that we that we have the um, you know that we have the guts to have a discussion on these topics based on facts and not on feelings. And I've felt that the last few years, unfortunately, has caused a lot of misery. We've had energy crisis, and it all came out of unrealistic expectations. Why are we not talking more about how we can turn the current cheap energy source into a better environmental product, rather than saying what will happen in 2050? Why are we not spending more time here? That's what I would suggest, because there's a big part of the world that needs cheap energy, and the solutions over here are not cheap, which means it will destroy wealth, and we can sit in the modern world and may think that you know, we're, we're in a good place. There are many places in the world that will, that will suffer a lot from this if we don't understand to make a proper transition with a focus of all the time improving the environmental footprint as we go along. So I hope that we'll have more fact-based discussions yeah. rather than emotional-based discussions on this topic. Isn't always also an interesting segue in that argument is all the, you know, 
you know, green bonds is super well, but like if you if you don't give out those financing terms to the people who are say in the dirty industry, but yep. trying, like you said, yep. to do the right thing, yep. it's almost skewed the wrong way. If you get what I'm saying, yes. it's like counterintuitive. How do you look at that? Because I remember you and I have talked about it a bit and it doesn't seem right that, you know, okay, you're a tanker company, so you can't get as well financed as hydrogen company. Yeah. But, you know, everything ties in together. But I think that is changing also in the sense that I think, um, at least from our experiences, that when you speak to banks and others, there's definitely, I mean, for all of us, there's a strong focus on this. But the focus is actually more about evaluating the company is this a company that has a responsible approach to where the world is going? And are they actually trying with whatever means available to invest in current assets that, that has a, a reduced trajectory on the environmental footprint? So I see it more now as, as a more you know, holistic approach to companies, the management the strategy, rather than just looking at the particular ship and what it carries. Um, but we've also just actually, I think we sent out today, we've done a sustainably linked finance and we do more of that, which I think is good because it ties us up with the banks and, and, and society that we are now committing in order to get this debt that we continuously stay within the parameters of regulation and a, a, a dropping slope on the trajectory. Yeah, makes sense. So we have some just some uh, quick fire questions and obviously this week is the energy week in Oslo for yep. several reasons. Uh, there's a lot of stories out there. Of course, Panama has been in the news a lot. Uh, we have China. Um, one one person said that they see if you see less cargo stolen by new build dirty tankers. So there's a lot of different stories here. What are, are the top stories from your perspective that people are discussing today in the market environment, etc.? So I think probably a few elements. I mean, I think from 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 the macro side, there's a lot of focus also on China. I mean, China is, is not for product tankers, interesting enough, but for a lot of other commodities, is obviously a very important part of the world, right? So where China is going, where China-Taiwan conflict is going is, is a topic that is being debated because it would have an impact on dry bulk, on gas, particularly on crude oil, uh, not so much on product tankers. So, so that is one. Um, the other one, I think, is, is as we talk about in, in, in our sector, is really the changing trading patterns that we've seen how the world has evolved. So to give you an example, before the Russian-Ukraine war, uh, there was quite a lot of oil and gas that went from Russia into Europe. That's now come to, to a halt. Um, and because of that, basically, we are seeing new trade lanes develop, which everybody expects are not going to go back to where they were because nobody wants to be depending on Russian oil again. So that that's maybe a more sector-specific one. Um, but I think the overall topic for a few sectors, including ours, is the fact that we have underinvested in supply and we can't catch up. So it's the difference from before where markets were up and down in cycle versus we have a much, much longer visibility now on the pathway. Yeah, interesting. So just a few um, questions we always ask. And the first one is about, do you have any favorite business books or other books that you can recommend to the audience? Um, well, yeah, interesting enough, I've read, well, I've read two books recently that actually probably will fit into that category. 
so one that's not even a new book, but um, I only read it recently called Red Notice by a guy called Bill Bowder, um, who was an early investor in Russia when when things were being broken up and privatized. And uh, I read it and I actually recommend it to a lot of my friends because it is a really good description of the mentality and the business mentality and the culture within Russia. Uh, and, you know, considering that hopefully shortly there will be an end of a war and that means a normalization, we should be slightly careful uh, how we conduct these negotiations. And I, I suggest people, when people read it, they'll see there is some deep cultural differences uh, and, you know, things that I will find very difficult to match up with the values that we have in our part of the world. Um, so, so that was good. And the other one is actually called The World for Sale, which I'm reading now, which is really about all the big trading houses and, and you know, their influence on the world, both in terms of what their role is, but also the history of the big trading houses like Trafigura, Vitol, etc. So quite interesting. If people want to understand the dynamic of how the world works, seen through, you know, trading companies' eyes. Uh, those are great ones. Um, and the last one, any reflections? Because we have quite a few uh, young professionals tuning in. And of course, you know, the idea of one day, you know, creating a shipping company or even just build an exciting, uh, rewarding career. Yeah. You know, people want to have advice. It's hard to be, you know, to give general advice because the context is important. But what do you say to a young professional who comes up to you and say, I would love to have a similar trajectory or career? Do you have any principles and uh, advice? Well, normally what I would say is that um, there is no prototype for a good shipping person. Right, so it's not like you have to be either this or that. We we use any profile in shipping. That's one. Um, I think shipping is as much about being able to create relations as it is to be about a top performer from a university. We need both. We need analysis, but we also need people that can create relations. Those are two different competences. So I usually tell people that if you think it's exciting to go into work where the world is your workplace, where people have to read the paper, uh, or, or paper today digitally, to get updated around the world, we get updated to our daily life, right? Everything that happens in the world has an effect on what we do. So it's kind of this constant update around the world. And the last one I used to say is that if you think it's exciting to work with different cultures, and again, having an, a, you know, an, a day that changes day by day, shipping is the perfect place. Um, you know, it's um, it really encompasses everything that involves interaction, global trade, um, and you know, particularly I would say the understanding of different cultures, which is what I like. And I think there's a need in the world for actually more people that actually embrace working with different cultures rather than pushing it aside. Yeah, that's the perfect ending. And like you said, the talent pool and shipping, like it can get bigger as well. So there's always, you know, I think important to tell the good stories as well. Yeah. Because a bright young student today, I don't know, in Denmark, Novo Nordisk technology, yes. it's not like directly goes into shipping, no, I guess. No, no, We have to, I mean, we have to fight for talent, right? Which is great. And I think that's why I'm, I'm, I'm really conscious about also explaining to people that if you look at something like Hafnir, so our core competence is arranging transportation. That's what we do. We all train. It's a craftsmanship, right? It's not, 
just a, a, a superficial training. We, we, we're building, we're educating people every day. At the moment, we happen to be transporting refined oil, but we can transport anything. So people shouldn't be so concerned about what kind of sector and, oh, you know, are we going to have oil in the future? That's kind of irrelevant. We're building transportation competences. And we can shift any given day as the world wants different things to transport. That's really the, the mindset you need to have. I think that's the perfect ending, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you very much. If you like this episode and the content we produce, head over to my YouTube channel. Just type in Christopher Vornheim. See you next time. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vornheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Vornheim. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vornheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only.